from New York, this is Democracy Now! Very recently, we've seen uh, very many comments that the what the Pentagon Papers showed was that the war was not winnable. Uh, actually, that had, and that's why I gave the Pentagon Papers, and that was the effect of them. Actually, none of the people who went to prison to protest the war did so because they thought the war was not winnable. They did it because they thought, they thought the war was wrong. Today, an hour with Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, who was recently diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer. We'll talk about the Pentagon Papers whistleblowing protest the Vietnam War on this day, May Day 1971, with Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn, as well as the growing threat of nuclear war today. Confronts us in Ukraine with a real possibility of a nuclear war coming out of this conflict. In other words, of most life on Earth, not all, most life on Earth being extinguished as a matter of the control of Crimea or the Donbass or Taiwan. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Sudan, both sides of the warring military factions have accused the other of violating an extended 72-hour ceasefire as fighting continues in Khartoum and elsewhere on the 17th day of the conflict. The United Nations is warning Sudan is at a humanitarian breaking point as it deploys its top humanitarian diplomat, who called the scale and speed of the crisis unprecedented. The the U.N. also warned of an escalation of violence in Sudan's West Darfur region. Meanwhile, U.N. agencies say they've begun helping refugees arriving at the Egyptian border, while aid workers in Chad say urgent assistance is needed for refugees there. If we fail to act now, it will be too late. Uh, the rainy season is coming in a few weeks, and uh, if we don't provide any assistance to the people, uh, the, the road will be blocked and uh, all the refugees here will be stopped. People in the capital, Khartoum, are facing the dangers of war while grappling with worsening shortages of essentials. We hear the sounds of artillery from this side. It can fall on the street in the front or the one behind. We have to sleep on the floor. There is no water or electricity. There is no food. All shops are closed, and the ones which are open sell products at expensive prices. We hardly eat what is enough for us. We only eat one meal per day so that the little food supplies we have are enough. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli troops shot and killed a Palestinian teenager during a raid this morning on a refugee camp outside the city of Jericho. The Palestinian Health Ministry reports 17-year-old Jibril Kamal was fatally shot in the head, six other people wounded. This follows the killing of 16-year-old Palestinian Mustafa Sabah near the town of Bethlehem Friday. He was shot in the chest by Israeli troops. So far this year, Israeli forces have killed more than 90 Palestinians. 
Tunisian Coast Guard said Friday they pulled 41 bodies from the Mediterranean Sea, raising the total known number of victims of migrant shipwrecks to 210 in the past 10 days. Boats transporting refugees to Europe, mostly from sub-Saharan Africa, Syria and Sudan, have been leaving in higher numbers from the Tunisian coast in recent months due to a crackdown on the boats by Libyan authorities. A worsening economic crisis in Tunisia, as well as racist comments against black Africans made by Tunisian President Kais Sayed in February. In Paraguay, conservative Santiago Peña, a former International Monetary Fund economist, has been elected president. Peña's victory keeps the South American country under control of the right-wing Colorado Party that has ruled Paraguay for at least 70 years. Peña opposes abortion rights and same-sex marriage. He served as finance minister from 2015 to 17 under the presidency of Horacio Cartes, whose government was accused of widespread corruption. Peña has vowed to strengthen diplomatic relations with with Taiwan and has said he plans to relocate Paraguay's embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. In Washington, D.C., hundreds of climate protesters rallied Saturday seeking to block entry to the annual gala dinner of the White House Correspondents Association. The protest was organized by the youth-led direct action group Climate Defiance, which is demanding President Biden fulfill his campaign pledge to stop fossil fuel extraction on public lands, a promise Biden has repeatedly failed to meet. Joining Saturday's action were Tennessee State Representatives Justin Pearson and Justin Jones, Two black lawmakers who were recently expelled from the Tennessee House of Representatives for leading a protest for gun control inside the state capitol. Montana's Republican Governor Greg Gianforte signed a law Friday banning gender-affirming care for transgender minors, making Montana at least the 15th state to ban or restrict such care. The governor enacted the law despite his own son, who's non-binary, lobbying him to block it. The ACLU of Montana vowed to sue as transgender and non-binary Montanans rallied Friday, joined by transgender state representative Zoe Zephyr, who's been barred from the House floor for condemning the measure. You can see our interview with Representative Zephyr, as well as Tennessee Representative Justin Jones, at democracynow.org. J.P. Morgan Chase is buying First Republic Bank's deposits and most of its assets after the bank was taken over by California's financial regulator. It's the third U.S. bank failure since March and the second largest in U.S. history. First Republic lost $100 billion in deposits during a bank run in March that followed the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Three of the four largest U.S. bank failures have happened over the past two months. In Texas, the man accused of killing five of his neighbors, including an eight-year-old child, at their home in the town of Cleveland Friday night is still at large, despite a search involving at least 200 police officers. Authorities said the suspect walked next door and shot the victims with his AR-15 semi-automatic rifle execution style. After survivor Wilson Garcia asked him to stop firing rounds in his yard as the loud noise was keeping Garcia's one-month-old baby awake. Garcia's wife, Sonia Argentina Guzman, and nine-year-old son, Daniel Enrique Lasso, were among those killed. Garcia and the family also called the police at least five times, but help never came. This is Wilson Garcia. My heart 
is with this eight-year-old little boy. I don't, I don't care if he was here legally. I don't care if he was here illegally. He was in my county. Five people died in my county. Authorities have identified the other victims. That, by the way, was the sheriff speaking, as Diana Velasquez Alvarado, Julissa Molina Rivera, and Jose Yonatan Casares. Police said the victims were all from Honduras. The Texas Republican governor, Greg Abbott, is facing backlash after he tweeted, quote, I've announced a 50 thousand dollar reward for information on the criminal who killed five illegal immigrants Friday. Critics denounced Abbott's remarks as dehumanizing. This is the local sheriff's comments. Is with this eight-year-old little boy. I don't I don't care if he was here legally. I don't care if he was here illegally. He was in my county. Five people died in my county. Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis signed new legislation Friday to help curb gun violence five months after a mass shooting at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs killed five people. The new laws raise the minimum age to buy firearms from 18 to 21, establishes a three-day period for gun purchases, expands Colorado's red flag law, and makes it easier for gun victims to sue manufacturers. Gun rights groups have already sued over the first two measures. Meanwhile, a federal judge temporarily blocked an Illinois assault weapons ban after plaintiffs claimed in a lawsuit the law violates their Second Amendment rights. And workers around the world are in the streets for May Day rallies marking International Workers' Day. In France, unions say one million people could march as part of ongoing protest against President Macron's pension reforms. In Turkey and Pakistan, authorities have blocked some rallies in public places. South Korea saw tens of thousands of people turn out for its largest May Day gathering since the pandemic started. We are in a situation where the existence of our labor unions are threatened due to the suppression by the government and the capital. We are fighting to create a world where there are no more temporary workers. We will fight strongly to improve the legal system so that government policies guarantee workers' rights. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Coming up, Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. He was recently diagnosed with unoperable pancreatic cancer. Stay with us. Four o'clock in the afternoon and I didn't feel like very much. I said to myself, where are you, golden boy? Where's your famous golden touch? I thought you knew where all of the elephants lie down I thought you were the crown prince of all the wheels in ivory town Just take a look at your body now There's nothing much to save And a bitter voice in the mirror cries Hey prince, you need a shave now if you can manage to get your trembling fingers to behave, why?
Leonard Cohen singing Dress Rehearsal Rag. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we spend the hour with Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. He recently announced he's been diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer. In a letter to friends, Dan Ellsberg wrote, quote, I feel lucky and grateful that I've had a wonderful life far beyond the proverbial three score years and ten. I feel the very same way about having a few months more to enjoy life with my wife and family, and in which to continue to pursue the urgent goal of working with others to avert nuclear war in Ukraine or Taiwan or anywhere else." Unquote. Dan Ellsberg turned 92 on April 7th. He may be the world's most famous whistleblower. In 1971, The New York Times began publishing excerpts of the Pentagon Papers, 7,000 pages of top-secret documents outlining the secret history of the Vietnam War. The Times expose was based on documents secretly photocopied by Dan Ellsberg and Anthony Russo while they worked as Pentagon consultants at the Rand Corporation. Ellsberg had been inspired to leak the documents by anti-war protesters. In fact, shortly before the Times first reported in the Pentagon Papers, Dan Ellsberg took part in an anti-war protest in Washington, D.C., 52 years ago today on May Day, 1971, as part of an affinity group with Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn. The Pentagon Papers leak would end up helping take down President Nixon, help end the war in Vietnam, and lead to a major victory for press freedom. The Nixon administration would go on to take extraordinary measures to silence and punish Ellsberg, including breaking into his psychiatrist's office. But the government's misconduct led to charges against him being dismissed. Over the past 50 years, Daniel Ellsberg has remained a leading critic of U.S. militarism and U.S. nuclear weapons policy, as well as a prominent advocate for other whistleblowers. I spoke to him Thursday from his home in Berkeley, California. Dan, it's wonderful to have you with us. I'm so appreciative that you're letting us into your home to have this conversation today. Well, it's so good for me to be back here, Amy. There is literally no one in American media, American life, that I more appreciate having the chance to talk about the state of the world with, and I love having me back on. Well, I thank you so much for taking this time, and I wanted to start off with this letter that you sent to friends about learning in February that you had inoperable pancreatic cancer. Can you talk about this? Can you talk about how you're feeling? There's an expression that goes way back to Marcus Aurelius, in fact, that you should live each day as though it were your last day on life, on earth. Uh, that's pretty hard to do. You'd spend the day canceling appointments, not making any others. But spending this month as though it were my last month on earth is very realistic for me, and it works very well for me. I can recommend it to others. So talk about what you've been doing since you've gotten this diagnosis and also your decision uh, not to have chemotherapy. Well, uh, some time did go by exploring possible uh, unusual forms of, of chemotherapy, immunotherapy and others, if I were a candidate for them. And uh, sort of a month went by there by well, very well-intended people who were encouraging me to seek a way out here. But those didn't seem to apply, after all. And uh, I just have to accept what uh, most people with pancreatic cancer have to, that there is no promising way out. I did choose to... Uh, 
youth these days in a way of saying what I think is important to the world in my last chance to do it. Maybe my last chance on this poem, on this uh, program, and maybe not. Uh, and to be with my family and friends. I've seen all my grandchildren now and my children. and I spent a lot of time saying goodbye and getting in touch with their problems and uh, being a family person, which is not my fort, actually. I love my family, but I've spent a lot of time being obsessed in other things over the years, and uh, I regret that. But uh, I have spent wonderful time. Just yesterday was my wife's birthday, and we recall that it was on April 17th, 1965. Not everyone can remember their first date uh, like that, but that was the first SDS march against the war. And I was working in the Pentagon on the war, pursuing the war. She was going to interview people in a nationwide interview program she had, and she induced me to carry her Ewer heavy uh, phonograph around with her tape recorder to interview people. And I marched up to the White House hoping, carrying that recorder and hoping that I would not be in any picture of the Washington Post where my colleagues at the Pentagon would say, what? He's protesting the war on my one day off from the war during this. But the next day, I induced her to go to the cherry blossoms. And that was our first date. And we've been together ever since. So that was 57 years ago. She really was the one who exposed you, is this right, to— um the anti-war movement by forcing you to carry her tape recorder. I mean, you were protesting right outside where you worked. You'd gone from Rand Corporation to the Pentagon. Actually, uh, it was right outside the Lincoln Memorial where we heard the speeches, and then we marched toward the White House and around the White House. I went back that evening to the Pentagon where I was working, having gotten her to promise to meet me the next day to go see the cherry blossoms. But I was very much in sympathy with what I was hearing on that uh, stadium from I.F. Stone and others about the war. Uh, I felt at that time, as a cold warrior, that we were picking the wrong place to plant the flag on this one. This was a loser, and I was not enthusiastic about our getting involved in it. But that was my job, and I did it all too well. If I were asked what regrets I have today, they would have to do with uh, doing a job I was asked to do that I knew was wrong for the country, and I did it to the best of my ability. The war was carried on by people who acted like that. So I want to talk about what you decided to do and how seminal, how key the anti-war movement was um, to your thinking, not only meeting Patricia, uh, but also seeing those war resistors, uh, what were called draft dodgers, the draft resistors who said they'd rather be in prison than uh, on the front lines in the war in Vietnam. Well, many many people, when the Pentagon Papers came out, a lot of people on the anti-war movement said, what's new about this is what we've been saying all along, which was true, which was that we had taken up a, a French, a French neo-colonial role, an imperial role, essentially, against the self-government of Vietnam, the sovereignty of Vietnam, and were doomed to uh, suffer the same fate as the French, essentially, to keep killing people and losing people until we finally decided to go home and leave them ruling their own home. Well, that was known inside. The insiders who were pursuing the war and dropping the bombs, millions of tons of bombs, it came to be even later than this, uh, knew the same thing and were doing it uh, likewise. The question was what to do about it. 
all the people I was working with in the government by that time felt, everyone I could think of uh, felt the war was hopeless, essentially. It was hopelessly stalemated, and there was no coming out. The words hope, stalemate was taboo on the year I came back from Vietnam with hepatitis in 1967, after two years here. Lyndon Johnson had said, no official is to use the word or hint at the word stalemate. And yet, that's where it was. So the war continued. Uh, people did their jobs, and it went on as though that judgment had not been made. And uh, eventually, what I really noticed was that there were people who felt much as I did and who were doing an awful lot more about it than I was doing. Namely, these were young people who you didn't have to be an expert. You didn't have to have a Ph.D. in international relations uh, as somebody uh, to, to see the truth about the, the war in Vietnam. As somebody said, you don't have to be an ichthyologist to know when a fish stinks. And these young people refused to go to be drafted uh, to uh, when they could have gone to Canada or Sweden or gotten a deferment or joined the Air Force National Guard like George W. H. W. Bush, somehow gotten out of the fighting. But no, they chose to give it as strong a resistance as they could nonviolently in the footsteps of Rosa Parks in the South and Martin Luther King and others and to say, no, this is wrong. You have to do this over our bodies. We will not participate in this because it's wrong. And uh, I realized when I met young men like this, like uh, Bob Eaton and Randy Keeler, who were on their way to prison simply to make the strongest message they could, which I believed as well, that the war was wrong. I realized I could think of doing what they did too, instead of just talking to insiders who felt as I did, but agreed there was just nothing you could do about it as long as the president wanted to carry on the war and his subordinates wanted to keep their jobs under the president, uh, that they could, in fact, simply uh, dissociate themselves from it and denounce the war openly. Very recently, we've seen uh, very many comments that the what the Pentagon Papers showed was that the war was not winnable. Actually, that had, and that's why I gave the Pentagon Papers, and that was the effect of them. Actually, none of the people who went to prison to protest the war did so because they thought the war was not winnable. They did it because they thought, they thought the war was wrong. And that's something I think that people have not succeeded, have not been willing to recognize all these years, not just that the war, not just that the U.S. had taken on some noble measure that wasn't quite uh, energetic enough to pursue or had other, or was easily distracted from or something like that, but that our country was, like so many other countries, capable of doing wrong and killing people without good reason. And uh, in effect, uh, an imperial kind of operation like that of the Japanese or the French after the Japanese or the Chinese before either of them. And those are the footsteps we were walking in. Well, I think to this day, the very idea that the U.S. is in some ways comparable to those empires, that it is an empire, is a taboo. And a very unfortunate one because it, it makes it impossible to understand what's going on. Why are we doing this? What's what's happening? Uh, why in the world are we in this position of ever time after time of fighting against the self-determination or the nationalism of other countries and uh, taking on those 
uh, murderous tasks, as opposed to dealing with problems at home. I think of our country as a covert empire, where covert is a term of art in the Pentagon and the CIA in particular. Uh, and I worked with CIA people in Vietnam. My immediate boss there was a retired CIA general, General Edward Lansdale. And the word covert means plausibly deniable. It means uh, not just secret. I'm doing something that I don't tell you about, but that I plant evidence suggests that I'm doing something different. And I'm not doing it. Somebody else is doing it. And the person above me is somebody else. Layer after layer to prevent the president from holding any accountability for what's happening. I think we not only feel we need and do be able to plausibly deny that we are an empire, that we run other people's governments, other people's police forces, that we decide who goes to jail and who gets shot in that country. And second, we deny the means... We do to keep it a covert empire, assassinations, paramilitary, military buildups, um, and even overt wars in some cases, as in Vietnam or Iraq. Dan, I wanted to go uh, to that decision you made after giving your 13-year-old son, Robert, a copy of Thoreau's essay on civil disobedience. The civil disobedience you engaged in. This is a clip from that 2009 documentary, The Most Dangerous Man in America, Dan Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. It was the evening of October 1st, 1969, when I first smuggled several hundred pages of top-secret documents out of my safe at the Rand Corporation. The study contained 47 volumes, 7,000 pages. My plan was to Xerox the study and reveal the secret history of the Vietnam War to the American people. The FBI was trying to find out who gave the New York Times a copy of the Pentagon's secret study. Pow, like a, like a thunderclap, you get the New York Times publishing the Pentagon Papers, and the country is panicking. This is an attack on the whole integrity of government. If whole file cabinets can be stolen and then made available to the press, you can't have orderly government anymore. A name has now come out as the possible source of the Times Pentagon documents. It is that of Daniel Ellsberg, the top policy analyst for the Defense and State Department. I think it is time in this country to quit making national heroes out of those who steal secrets and publish them in the newspaper. In the first year of marriage, we're talking about him going to prison for the rest of his life. We felt so strongly that we were dealing with a national security crisis. Henry Kissinger said that Dr. Daniel Ellsberg was the most dangerous man in America, and he had to be stopped. So that a clip from The Most Dangerous Man in America uh, by Judith Ehrlich and Rick Goldsmith. I remember when we had you on, Dan, so many different times, beginning 27 years ago, you were one of our first guests on Democracy Now! But when this documentary came out, you and Patricia, your wife, uh, came on the show with the directors. Um, this goes to that point where you understood the stakes of what you were going to do. You brought your two little kids, 13-year-old Robert, 10-year-old Mary, to help you, not that they completely understood what you were doing, 
Xerox the 7,000 pages of the secret history of Vietnam, U.S. involvement in Vietnam? That's right. I um, hadn't really meant to bring my, my daughter, but on the second occasion at all, she was only 10, but um, uh, she had complained about being left in the car when I went up to do some last-minute Xeroxing <laughs> with Robert. And uh, once she was up there, she complained about being given nothing to do. So we gave her scissors. And when, by mistake, the police came to the door for the second time during this project because the owner of the shop had not turned the key correctly and had set off an alarm in the police station. So when the police arrived at the door, they found uh, my son, who was 13 at that time, Mike Robert, was running the Xerox machine. And I was uh, collating uh, on the floor various copies we were making. And Mary, who was 10, was cutting top secret off the tops and bottoms of the pages with the scissors, kind of a family project. So they uh, saw how innocent it was, and they, they left. But my objective with my son in particular was to let him see that there were times when it, the best thing you could do, you really needed to say no to a government policy, even at the risk of prison. And I wanted him to see that I had not gone off my nut, as I would be described uh, shortly, I was sure, that I was not acting as a traitor or fanatically or hysterically. I was just doing something in a business-like way that I felt had to be done, even though it had a risk. I wanted to plant that idea in his life, and it took hold as it did with my daughter. My son is the editor-in-chief of Orbis Books, the Catholic seminary um, uh, liberation theology uh, publishing house. And my daughter is head of uh, Violence Against Women Project, a worldwide project at American University, both of them having been arrested at various times. It's, um, and you that... wanted them to know this because you recognized that this could be among the last time you were spending I with them. I would see them. Yes, I thought they'd otherwise just see me through heavy glass in a uh, in a prison and would have uh, the, the way that Julian Assange has had to grow up with his young sons in his uh, total security prison in Belmarsh for having facilitated truth-taking of the same kind that I've done. As a matter of fact, his is the first prosecution of a journalist for putting information out, and it will not be the last if he's successfully extradited over here. So he has a couple of children who've seen him literally only in prison, and uh, better than not seeing him at all. That's certainly the case. But um, uh, what did he? Uh, I reveal this year that I had the information uh, from Julian Assange essentially that Chelsea Manning had given Assange, and which was later put out in the papers, I had that before the papers, uh, before the newspapers had them, meaning that I was as indictable right now as I'm talking to you uh, as any of the people who've been indicted by this Justice Department because they're working with a law whose plain language is, on the one hand, 
unconstitutional from the point of view of the First Amendment, but read properly just says that anyone who reads or handles or stores a piece of paper that has been marked to be protected, uh, marked classified by the government, is subject uh, to imprisonment. That implies even to readers of the New York Times and very definitely to journalists like Charlie Savage or the publishers or Julian himself. In other words, in that respect, we've gone backwards since that day. That was, after all, Mine was the first prosecution of anyone for telling the truth to the American people. And there have been several dozen since. And the first one uh, of a journalist, actually, is, I think, just preceding the first one of a reader before we get there. So this, this law, the Espionage Act, very much needs to be repealed or rescinded in such a way that it does not serve like a British Official Secrets Act, which was a perfect law for an empire. Dan, um even before the Pentagon Papers were published in The Times, but after you had given the secret, the top-secret report to The Times, uh, you were trying to end this war any which way. We're broadcasting this show on May Day, on May 1st. And it was May 1st, 1971, that you led a small affinity group that included, what, Howard Zinn, the late great historian, and Noam Chomsky, to Washington to protest the war. I think Howard would get arrested later that day. But can you talk about um, that moment, that protest with Howard, Noam, and others? Well, the idea was that if they won't stop—it was Rennie Davis's idea—that if they won't stop the war, we'll stop the government. And so they had, they had about 25,000 people, which was not enough, actually, to do it. But we were into affinity groups. And uh, as you say, I was in a very uh, privileged one—privileged for me—with uh, Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky and Marilyn Young and uh, Fred, uh, a number of others, Mitch Goodman. Marshal Patakshny, and we did, in fact, get beaten over the head on the streets several times and got the advantage of testing, field testing their uh, pepper sprays directly into the face, which is uh, very effective. I can—I'll uh, give a little uh, blurb for it here. Uh, it is very disorienting indeed. And then, and then we, again, we thought it was pretty much over when they began uh, just clearing the streets of— Georgetown by arresting everybody there, including, to their fault, a number of congressmen's children who were shopping in Georgetown. 13,000 people were arrested and put in RFK Stadium without any warrants, without any paperwork as to why they'd been arrested, what they were there. So in the end, they were paid a small uh, indemnity for having done that. We'll continue our conversation with Pentagon Papers whistleblower Dan Ellsberg in 20 seconds. There is a peaceful solution called a peace revolution. Now let's take back America. There was a dream, so believe it. Now get ready to receive it, and we'll take back America. There's a war, and we're in it, but I know we can win it, and we'll take back. 
Nelson singing a peaceful solution in our old studios at the Firehouse in 2008. He turned 90 on Saturday. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman as we continue our conversation with Pentagon Papers whistleblower Dan Ellsberg, who recently announced he's been diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer. This is another excerpt from the 2009 documentary The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. The clip looks at how the Nixon White House responded to the Pentagon Papers' leak. You'll hear White House counsel John Dean, Eagle Krogh, who went to prison for his part in Watergate, but first President Nixon. Just because some guy's going to be a martyr, we can't be in a position uh, of allowing the fellow to get away with this kind of wholesale thievery or otherwise it's going to happen all over the government. I just say that we've got to keep our eye on the main ball. The main ball's Ellsberg. We've got to get this son of a bitch. The leak of the Pentagon Papers changed the Nixon White House. It really is what some of us have called the beginning of the dark period. I mean, it was rough and tumble before, but it got down and dirty. So it's really a defining event for the Nixon presidency. And this is when Eagle Krogh, Bud Krogh, was selected to head up the so-called plumber's unit. I was summoned to the Oval Office uh, by the president. John Ehrlichman and I met with him. There was some suspicion that Dr. Ellsberg had access to the more recent war plans that had been developed by the Nixon administration and would be able to release those documents. I came from that meeting feeling very strongly that uh, I was dealing with a national security crisis and I was to take any means necessary to respond to it. Again, that's uh, former Nixon official Eagle Krogh, an excerpt from Those Dangerous Men in America, Daniel Ellsberg, and the Pentagon Papers. Um, Dan, I'm sure this is bringing you back, though. You live it every day. Uh, then breaking into your psychiatrist's office. Uh, talk about what that meant to you, and if that was any worse than facing 100 years in prison. I think it's been misunderstood, again, another aspect of the Pentagon Papers, it's been misunderstood this, this whole time. It's almost always described as an attempt to smear my reputation or to stigmatize me in some way. Now, I was already an American citizen facing 12 felony counts, a possible 115 years in prison. So they weren't working with a... <laughs> Uh, a new surface here entirely. I had been stigmatized quite a bit by that time, but that wasn't the aim, actually, at all of their sending it in. As Krogh indicated, and people miss this, what they were worried about was what else I knew, namely what else I knew and could document that went beyond the, the Johnson administration into the Nixon administration. The Pentagon Papers themselves ended in 1968 before Nixon came in, so they didn't incriminate him except for his role in uh, the 50s, uh, supporting the French and proposing nuclear weapons at that time, by the way. But he wasn't mainly involved. His and so when they came out, in fact, he was very calm about it, and properly so. This will show that, as Kissinger said, that it's really the Democrats' war after all. And they realized it didn't constitute a real threat for them. And then they realized that they had these terrific secrets that had to be kept secret from the American public because they were so criminal and dangerous, namely that they were threatening North Vietnam with nuclear weapons, the same way that the criminal threats that are being made against Ukraine right now by Vladimir Putin. Nixon was making those threats through 
the Russian ambassador Dobrynin, and then directly at that time. And that had to be kept secret from the American people at that time, that, because the American democracy would not have, uh, have stood for that. So uh, they had to shut me up. And the problem then was to find out whether I had documents that could document prove what I was saying, because people were very reluctant to believe that a president could lie to that degree or could be so criminal to that degree and reckless, unless they had documents to prove it, which I didn't have, and really never did convince the public on this point. So I failed in a way in my name, my major project, which was to convince the public that a lying campaign, uh, an imperial campaign against Vietnam had been carried on by four previous presidents, was being carried on by a fifth. I said it, but uh, no one believed it. They didn't want to believe that the president was lying to them, just as they had allowed themselves to be misled by Truman, Eisenhower, Johnson, Kennedy, Kennedy, and Johnson. So that part uh, did not succeed. However, they were had reason to feel and to fear that I might turn up with documents that would demonstrate, which did exist. Uh, my friend Roger Morris, who was the deputy to Henry Kissinger at that time, had the documents, saw the documents for the fall of 1969 that listed North Vietnamese targets, uh, transshipment points in the jungle a mile and a half from the Chinese border, and which were figured they would kill only a handful. Literally, they had a figure three of civilian casualties. Don't worry about that. Uh, and they would send a strong signal to the Chinese that we prepared to use nuclear weapons right on their border in the hopes that it would bring Chinese air defenses into the border and we could pursue them in hot pursuit into China and use nuclear weapons against China. So uh, the provocative aspects of this were very deliberate. When I asked Roger later why they didn't just reveal these documents, which is what Nixon and Kissinger were afraid that I had, and with reason. I knew all the people who were working on this and who resigned over the Cambodian escalation. Yes, they should have given me these documents. And when he, I asked him why they hadn't. And he said, we should have thrown open the safes and screamed bloody murder, because that's exactly what it was. What about the latest Pentagon leak, the leak of the Pentagon documents, and what they say about the war in Ukraine, and what people understand who are most knowledgeable, who are insiders about this war? It's shown from the reaction to these leaks, the major leak being, <laughs> once again, like the Pentagon Papers, that when a war appears to be stalemated— it may be stalemated from the inside just as well. That's what the Pentagon Papers showed, that there is no real prospect for progress and that killing people is on either side unjustified by any prospect of any humane result. Intelligence estimates have shown that a year from now, we will probably be in pretty much the same positions, a stalemate, and will not be willing to negotiate. What does that say about our uh, the people who are making our foreign policy? If that doesn't define a, a crisis, an emergency, uh, what would? Well, uh, yes, I suppose the prospect that we're about to lose within a month, and that's not what either is facing yet. I don't want to test 
how either side reacts if they're facing that. If the U.S. were to do what Biden is urged to do by many, which is to direct U.S. participation in the war, shooting Russians, as I say, for the first time since 1920, a year after, two years after the First World War ended, we were still shooting at Russians against Bolsheviks in 1920. <laughs> Every Russian knows that. How many Americans know that? Any? So uh, that they have that very much in their memory. When Biden is urged to send direct planes that, that Ukrainians can't yet operate, like the F-16, tanks uh, that the uh, they cannot yet operate. The tendency to send Americans to operate those tanks and get them right away into business will be very strong along with that. I can only hope that Biden will be pressed by a large part of the public, pressed not to involve the U.S. directly in that war and to be pursuing negotiations, which it is currently absolutely uh, eschewing, is rejecting the idea of negotiations. There's increasing information that one year ago, in early April 2022, the Zelensky and Putin essentially had an agreement within very close to an agreement on a pre-war uh, status quo, returning to a pre-war status quo in Crimea, in the Donbass, in uh, relation to NATO and everything else, but that the U.S. and the British, and Boris Johnson went over that and said, we are not ready for that. We want the war to continue. We will not accept a negotiation. I would say that was a crime against humanity. And I say that with all seriousness um, to the idea that we needed to see people killed on both sides in order, quote, to weaken the Russians, not for the benefit of the Ukrainians, but for an overall geopolitical strategy was wicked. And however the war started, and I think with uh, both incredibly uh, bad judgment by Putin and aggression, and atrocity, and on the other hand, provocation by the United States in the sense of policies that were consciously foreseen to increase the probability of a Russian crime of this sort. Tells me that I think there were a lot of Americans who wanted this war, and they got exactly what they wanted, even better than they could have imagined. Huge arms sales to our allies, the U.S. again having an essential role in Europe with an indispensable enemy, an enemy that we could not run the world without Russia. And Russia stepped into that role very willingly to say that Russia had no choice uh, but to do what they did do is fairly absurd. That's like saying you can provoke a person to shoot themselves in the foot or in this case, to kneecap themselves. Uh, Putin had no choice but to kneecap himself and to give himself 800 more miles of adversarial border with Finland and to uh, resuscitate, resuscitate NATO and get these arms sales and so forth. It's just absurd. I also wanted to bring up China, because in 2021, you revealed that the government had drawn up plans to attack China uh, with nuclear weapons over a crisis in the Taiwan Strait. Can you talk about the relevance of that today and when you got that information? 
Yes. I revealed that information right after The Economist magazine had a cover with Taiwan on the cover and a big bull's mark, uh, bull mark on, on front of it showing that it was, quote, the most dangerous place in the world at that point. And what was at stake was a U.S. intervention in the politics of China, namely supporting a secession movement, an independence movement, by a portion of China regarded almost universally by Chinese as part of China, uh, supporting it in a way which the Chinese were totally forecasting uh, would lead to war, that they would not accept it any more than Lincoln accepted the secession of the Confederacy in this case. And we were pressing for that in a way that I have to say I can't entirely understand. People act as if they want war with China. How can that be? Selling them arms? Yes, I see that. But why they why they want to change the relation of Taiwan, which has been pretty much the same since 1979, right now, in a way that the Chinese guarantee us will lead to war, uh, is inscrutable to me. And you but said anyway, that these that, nuclear war plans to... over the Taiwan no. Straits uh, were made in 1958? 58, yeah, that's right. And uh, by the way, they, there was almost a corresponding crisis earlier in 1954-55, so this was known as the second Taiwan crisis in the 50s. But uh, the idea there was that we would initiate nuclear war if the Chinese successfully bombarded by artillery islands that were within artillery range, actually within visual range of the mainland, very easy, a couple of them are just a mile on mile and a half off from the mainland, to keep those rocks from control by Beijing, uh, we were prepared to send in U.S. planes that block that group blockade, send in U.S. ships to break that blockade. And if the artillery kept that off, or there was a danger of losing U.S. ships, we would hit Chinese targets as much as, as far away as Shanghai, which would certainly, in Eisenhower's terms, and who okayed this, if necessary, if necessary to get through to those islands, we would initiate nuclear war. And he foresaw that as leading to Russian, the ally of China, uh, attacks on uh, on uh, Taiwan and on Okinawa, on Guam, even on Japan, which in turn guaranteed in terms of our planning all-out nuclear war, hitting every city in Russia and China, uh, killing as our estimates were at that time, 600 million people. And their relevance today? Over Taiwan. And that was what they, that's what they were planning to do then. The number of targets in China has not reduced since then. Uh, the, uh, that was a time when any fighting with the Russians under Eisenhower, even if it started over Berlin, was guaranteed to include targeting China as a whole as well. That may have changed to some extent, but uh, to a large extent at various times, we've still continued to say, shouldn't we have a plan for war with Russia that doesn't include uh, destroying China? To which the answer is, well, do you really want to destroy Russia and not China also? We'll be destroyed in the process. That would leave China ruling the world. In short, Russia and China have to be regarded as a joint target complex. Okay, this is insanity. This is a, a form of insanity as a kind of myth 
and hopes that has taken over the public. It is as insane as uh, QAnon or as the belief that Trump is the president currently of the United States. And yet the belief that we can do less bad by striking first than if we strike second is what confronts us in Ukraine with a real possibility of a nuclear war coming out of this conflict. In other words, of most life on Earth, not all, most life on Earth being extinguished as a matter of the control of Crimea or the Donbass or Taiwan. That's insane. Who is going to face up to that? I call again to the young people that Greta Thunberg has mobilized on this to say the adults are not taking care of this and our future absolutely depends on this changing somehow fast now. The picture I was looking at, which I can show you here, I guess, just happen to have it by me here, was when uh, I were in Norway, I was getting an Olaf Palme award, and we went over to where this girl was uh, had just started, Fridays for the Future, and Strike on Climate, first, in first days and weeks entirely by herself, and then eventually she was joined by a few others, as you can see in that picture, that this was, I think, in early January, after she had started, she had 50 or 60 people in the snow on Friday morning, not Saturday morning, not Sunday morning, but instead of going to school, people said, uh, her teacher said, this is all very well what she's doing, but she needs to be studying in school. And her attitude was, uh, what is there going to be to study about or what use will that make if the climate has changed the way it's going? The reason I admire her so much is not only the the brilliance of this uh, this movement, her acting on her own initially, taking the initiative, inviting others, doing it in the form of a general strike, which is, I think, is a, is a really important way of demonstrating nonviolent action, the withdrawal of support, the withdrawal of support. Dan, I don't want to exhaust you. Well, we've spent more than an hour talking, but I did want to ask you about what is most helpful to you um, after revealing that um, you have an operable pancreatic cancer for friends, for people who care about what you've done, for ways people can be helpful to you? Well, uh, first of all, that revelation, which I was dubious about making, but my sons thought, well, my friends ought, ought to know this, and then it, it got larger, uh, has proven to get me a just flood of uh, responses, all, all positive, essentially, uh, thanking me whatever I've done and recalling times we've worked together and making every indication that that was a that was a tradition of working together that people wanted to see continued, and that's above all what I would uh, what I would like to see. Uh, a, I'm smiling because I'm thinking of a, a friend uh, named uh, Julia Butterfly Hill. She was called that because she changed herself to major prime oriole redwood trees to keep them from being cutting down. Her tree Luna up in the tree for a long time. What's that? Her tree she named Luna. Yeah, right. 
So she mentioned once uh, when I, I heard her say, when somebody asked her, they said, she said, people tell me you inspire me. And she said, I say, really, to do what? And uh, uh, so I am hearing from a lot of people that I've been inspirational. And I am confident, God knows, without people like Bob Eaton and uh, Randy Keeler and before them, uh, people going back to Randy, to Rosa Parks very much so, and Martin Luther King and Thoreau, others, uh, I wouldn't have thought of doing what I did. I've been very, very proud that Ed Snowden has said, without Daniel Ellsberg, no Ed Snowden. And he was impressed by the movie Most Dangerous Man. It helped him strengthen, he said, what he thought he ought to do. The key thing in all these cases, all these people who are writing me, and I would like the occasion to say I'm reading all of those, and with the other things up till now, I've been able to answer very few of them, even the best, even the most inspiring ones, and I hope to have time to do that. I don't know how much time I have. Uh, if it's weeks or a month, uh, they may not hear from me. If it's longer than that, there's nothing I'd like better to do than pursue the interaction I have with my family. And my family, the larger family, my extended family, are the people who do regard what we're going through as an emergency and we're working together nonviolently and truthfully to change it. And the people who've been arrested with me, uh, but also just the people who take a chance with their jobs and their associations and their work to focus on, to teach themselves what's going on and to act effectively. All one can say is it can work. You know, one of the things you've um, enabled people to do by sending out this letter that says you don't know how much time you have left, um, is they're talking about all that you have done. And I'm wondering what you want people to focus on, what you are proudest of. <laughs> well, my pride at this point is not my dominant uh, emotion at this point. I'm much more aware of, as Greta would put it, how little has changed in these critical aspects of the danger of nuclear war and how how limited the effectiveness has been to curtail what we've done. It is possible to see, to think, and it's not reasonable to say, we've done all this and it uh, has made no difference. And it's important to see that it hasn't made more difference than it has and to ask why and what we can do better. Uh, looking at this war, for example, that's going on now, the Cold War is incompatible. Uh, God knows it is not—the U.S. didn't just cause this by itself, and Russia didn't cause it by itself. There are people all around the world who want Cold War, who find it better to run the world with an, an adversary like Russia or the U.S. or China. Uh, to explain why we have to do what they say and we have to make the controversies. So I think to, to study and perceive that uh, this is not in the hands of people who have our interests or the interests of survival, of human survival, high in their priorities, um, is, uh, is essential. It's an awakening that's uh, in many ways uh, painful, 
but uh, hard to imagine are escaping our own activities without that. Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, he was recently diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer. 52 years ago today, on May Day 1971, he took part in a protest against the Vietnam War in Washington, D.C., along with Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn. Four years later, the Vietnam War ended April 30th, 1975. Visit democracynow.org for all our interviews with Dan Ellsberg.